Assistant Pastor Elliot Everett, always a privilege and a pleasure to open God's Word with you and invite you, if you have your Bibles, if you want to follow along in your bulletin, we're going to be in Genesis 15 this morning, and we're going to read the whole chapter. It's not too long of a chapter, but I'll go ahead and, and begin reading that if you'll read along with me. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us this morning. As we drop in this morning to the Abraham story in chapter 15, already his story begins in chapter 12, so already a few chapters into it. But what I want to do this morning is consider uh, what Abraham's whole story is founded upon and and really uh, God's relationship to his people forward into history. It's his promise. The promise that Abraham received, the promise that called Abraham to leave his home, the promise that Abraham followed, the promise that Abraham is still finding himself here looking to be fulfilled, not knowing quite how it would be fulfilled, and the promise that Abraham would seek in his life to live by, though he at times struggled. I want you to think about a couple, one of my my favorite uh, parts of doing college ministry, I did college ministry for about eight years. And one of my favorite parts of college ministry was watching couples, couples as they would meet, as they would date, as they would get to know each other, as they'd fall in love, as they'd get engaged, and then as they'd get married. But I want you to think about that moment when they get engaged. 
Uh, there's a lot that goes into that, that can go into that. Usually maybe, uh, maybe the guy has talked to her parents and asked for permission, asked for her hand. He's, he's bought a ring and for how, depending on how long he's had the ring, he's had to hide it and hide his excitement until finally the moment comes when he gets down on one knee and he, he opens the ring and he asks her if she will marry him. What I want you to think about in that moment is this. What about the relationship has changed? What's different? They're not married yet. But if you've ever witnessed a proposal, you know, you can see it. It's, it's a newfound sense of joy. People who witness a proposal, they feel that joy and that excitement, even if you don't know the couple. Why all this over the top, uh, maybe that's my own commentary, planning that begins immediately, probably in that moment, when the date will be, where the venue will be all these different things. What is different about the, the relationship? Another way to ask it be, why is it different? And I think we all know this rather intuitively, but, but the thing I'm honing in on is I think the reason the relationship is different in that moment is because a promise has been made. They've now promised to each other that they will come together to be married. It's different. There's a new weight to what's going on between them. Abraham is near the top of the list of, of the biggest names in the Bible. Uh, and if there's one thing that defines Abraham's story, it's promise and the weight and the burden of the promise of God on Abraham's life. As soon as God shows up in his life and lays out that promise, that defines him and his relationship to God for the rest of his life. And it would go on to define all his descendants after him. When you see God throughout the Old Testament coming to his people and saying, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. One of the things he's going back, it's like your father, Abraham, whom I made the promise to. What's most vividly portrayed for us here in Genesis 15 is that what we see here is that this, the most stabilizing force in a person's relationship with God is God's promise. The stabilizing force of living for and following and obeying God is his promise. The foundation of the gospel of the whole system of Christianity is God's promises to his people. And that's what we see so, so vividly drawn out for us here in Genesis 15. So I want to look at three things about this promise as we see it here. And the first thing I want to look at is the basis of the promise. What's the basis of the promise? What are the reasons given? Well, again, we're kind of jumping a few chapters into the story uh, of, of Abraham. But you see what God shows up here. There's not really any transition from the chapters before. But God shows up at this point in Genesis 15, verse 1. And what is the basis of the promise? It's God's self-identification. Abraham, fear not. I am your shield. And again, we're not given much context of what's happened in the immediate days before this. But I think this clues us into probably what was going on in Abraham's heart. She's back in Genesis 12. God shows up. We're not told anything about Abraham, what kind of man he was. God shows up and calls him and makes promises to him. Tells him that he was going to, you're going to leave your, the land of your fathers. You're going to go to a land that I will show you. I'm going to make your name great. And then the biggest part there in Genesis 12 is all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring, Abraham. Well, when you read on from chapter 12, 
you see that that hasn't probably gone the way Abraham thought it would go. He leaves his father, but then there's a famine, and so he has to detour into Egypt. In Egypt, he is afraid of Pharaoh. His wife, Sarah, is beautiful, so he tells, Sarah, he tells Pharaoh that Sarah is his sister instead of his wife because he doesn't want to get killed. Then a plague is brought on the land of Egypt until Pharaoh finally finds out that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. And you got to love it when Pharaoh comes to Abraham, he says, why didn't you just tell me she was your wife? Then his nephew Lot, he and his nephew Lot, they have a falling out, and so they separate. Then Lot is captured, and so David, uh, Abraham has to go avenge him, and so he gathers an army and goes and slaughters the kings that captured Lot. So needless to say, as you get to Genesis 15, it's probably safe to say Abraham was not feeling like a blessing to the world, not even to his own wife. All he has at this point is God's promise, but none of it really seems true. He's a nomad. He doesn't have any land. His nephew doesn't even think that his name is great. And so he has to be wondering, have I blown it? Did I miss it? Did I receive this thing wrongly? Did I follow it wrongly? And so here's the crisis, and it's a crisis that we all come to at various points in our lives. Abraham's circumstances and Abraham's feelings seemed to be directly contradicting the promises of God in his life. It didn't seem to be lining up. I got a vivid illustration of this last week. Carrie and I, my wife and I, we were on vacation last week, and, and one night we caught some entertainment in, in a, the form of a professional juggler. Uh, and I know that sounds like a parlor trick, but when you see somebody that's really good at juggling, it's pretty impressive. And he juggled all kinds of things. I can't even juggle. I can't juggle anything. Um, but he juggled all kinds of things. He was very proficient in his craft. But the best part of the show is he brings a guy up on stage and um, the guy has no idea what he's getting into, convinces the guy to lay down in the middle of the stage. And so you kind of know what's coming. Maybe he's going to juggle something over him. Then he brings a blindfold and lays it over the guy's face. And then with a wink to the crowd, he walks over to a box and he pulls out three swords. The guy on the ground hears the clinking of metal peeks from his blindfold and sees swords, immediately sits up and just goes back to his seat in the audience. It was quite funny. It almost looked staged, but it wasn't because he somehow convinced him to come back. But what happened, that guy on the stage, what had happened, right? He just, everybody, we believed this guy could juggle anything, no matter what. But how he was feeling, the guy who was asked to lay in the middle of the stage, how he was feeling, his circumstances in the moment were contradicting the faith he had had in the juggler in the moment. We all have these crisis points. We all come to these crossroads at different times in our lives, different circumstances, different feelings, different doubts, different darkness. Things happen where we come to a point where we are forced to think and make a decision. What is more real? My circumstances or my feelings or the promises of God? what God has said he would do, what God is doing. Will I take God at his word or will I have to trust something else? This is where Abraham is. And it's not the last time he will be there either. For us, there's so many things that can come. Will I believe, as Paul tells me, as, as Paul and others say, will I believe that God loves me so much that he did not even spare his only son? 
Beautiful truth. Do I really believe that? Or will I continue to look to relationships, to other people, to affirmation, to acclaim, to respect in my workplace, in my marriage, in my family, in my community for those things? Because they seem more real than God's love for me. Will I believe that God truly is sovereign in all things? Or are there things that continually creep into my mind, into my heart, that I think if those things happened, my world would fall apart? What if I don't end up where I thought my life would always end up? What if my marriage isn't going as well as I thought it would be going? What if my kids are not responding to me the way that I thought they should be responding to me at this point in my life? Do I believe that God truly is coming again to restore and to make all things right? Or do I think it's necessarily who's running what institution or government that will determine those things in this world? Up to Genesis 15 in Abram's life, nothing had seemed to confirm God's promises, at least externally. And so he's struggling through that. And notice what God doesn't say when he shows it. So what's the basis of this promise? It's not how Abraham handles it. God doesn't show up and say, okay, Abraham, here we go. Let's try this again. You get another chance. No, he just says, Abraham, fear not. I am your shield. That's the basis. Because if there's anything the first, uh, first 15 chapters of Genesis and really the rest of history as it's recorded for us in the Bible. If there's anything that's made clear, it's that there is no hope for sinful man in this world save for the gracious blessing and promise of God himself. And so God reminds Abram of that. And so what Abram was still learning and what God would lead him beyond this, that everything, his entire life, all of it would rest solely on the promise. So that struggle continues for him, for us. Will you take God at his word? Or will you be, be forced to trust something else? Well, let's look at Abraham's response here. Abraham's response is really what makes this chapter such a, a big deal. As, as we saw Paul quote it in Romans 4. In verse 6, we read that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. So what we're seeing in Abraham is what saving faith looks like. His faith in God, taking God at his word in this moment, we're told that God counts or credits that faith to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham is justified by his faith. He is fully accepted by God. He is fully loved of God. God is fully pleased with him. Well, how did he do it? How did Abraham do it? How did Abraham get it? And that's what we read in Romans chapter 4. That's what Paul is trying to take up in Romans chapter 4 in the first five verses when Paul says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? How did he gain this righteousness? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
You see what Paul's saying? In Abraham, we see saving faith. Why? Because Abraham removed all his doubts? No, they're still there. And you'll see them pop up again. Is it because Abraham is finally stepping out in obedience? No, because that would mean he had gained something. He was getting what was his due. No, verse 5 of Romans 4 is the key. To the one who does not work, but believes. So saving faith begins when you see, when you know that you have nothing else to trust in except God. Not even anything in yourself. Saving faith begins when you stop trusting or looking to your abilities or lack thereof, to your strength or lack thereof, and you look at his strength and his ability. Saving faith begins when I realize it's not about me, but about him, about what he has said he would do and what he has done. Paul would go on to say in Romans 4, verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Saving faith, it isn't about your faith. It's about who it's in. It's not the fact that you have faith, it's who your faith is in. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, asks sometimes to people, where is your faith? He's not asking, do you have any or not? The presupposition is that the assumption is that you have faith in something. The question is, what is it in? The way to be right with this God is by faith, to believe him and to believe him only, no matter what other things in my life are telling me. We read of stories of conversion in the Bible, and, and sometimes they blow us away. We read about the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. It always astounds me. The, he, the, Paul and Silas are in the jail cell. The Philippian jailer, in a moment of crisis, comes and falls before them and says, what must I do to be saved? And they say to him, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your house. And we think that's amazing, but is that it? Think about the thief on the cross in his last moments, in Jesus' last moments, looks to him and says, remember me, please, when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says, surely I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we think that's beautiful, but is that it? And it is. Because the way to be right with this God, the way to live in relationship with this God, to, the way to live this life with and for this God, is by faith. To believe that he can do and that only he can do. Meaning I can't be good enough. I can't even believe enough. In fact, it's going to have zero to do with me. But everything to do with him. That is living by faith. But what most of us do, why do we struggle with faith in the ways that we do. Usually when we have crises of faith, when we struggle in our faith, when we're grown up, we think to ourselves, I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to commit myself to this. I need to commit myself to that. Now look, 
We are saved. Paul lays it out very clearly that our salvation and our faith even is a gift in Ephesians 2. But he ends that passage by saying we were created and saved unto good works. It's not that there aren't works for us to do. But what gets me right, what stabilizes me in my life in relationship with God? It's faith. Because all our common prescriptions of I need to do this and I do need to do that, they all depend on us. And that's not faith. Abraham believed, he believed God and he believed God would do what he said he would do. And that's enough. Paul uses that later on in Romans 4 to tell us that's it. That's saving faith. Now, is that where God would stop working in his life? No. But that's saving faith. And Abraham would now move forward living life by that faith. So we have the basis of the promise and Abraham's response to it. Last thing, and we don't have enough time to fully consider the last half of this chapter, but the sealing of the promise. The first thing you see is at verse 8, his faith is credited to him as righteousness, but then he's right back to asking questions. And I don't think it's a place of skepticism. I think, I think the way God answers the question shows us Abraham is genuinely asking, how can I know better how you will do this? I believe, help my unbelief in a sense. And God's answer is, is more, more amazing than anything that's come so far in the story. It seems weird to us what happens here, taking animals and cutting them apart, but it actually was a a culturally normal thing. Uh, when, when two parties would, would have a contract enter into some contractual covenant relationship, this is how they would do it. They would literally cut a covenant by cutting animals, uh, laying them out, and they would walk between the pieces. And basically what they were saying to one another is, may I be as one of these animals if I do not uphold my end of this deal. And so that part's not what would have astonished Abraham, but what astonishes Abraham is that the God of the universe comes down and passes through these pieces, binds himself covenantally to Abraham. God, how do I know that your promises are true? And God shows up and says, let me show you. But even more than that, What's even more astonishing than that, that God would condescend to come and enter into this relationship, is that God alone passes through the pieces. Puts Abraham into a deep sleep. It's not a mutual Abraham, you hold up your end, I'll hold up my end. It's God himself saying, come what may, I will bear the full promises of this covenant. God takes on himself, binds himself to both sides, says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you, even if it means that I have to die. Right there, Genesis 15. The only thing that could possibly have been better than what Abraham saw is if it really happened. And it's precisely what, as the story moves forward in history, what all of history was building to when God himself would show up once again and show how true it was. Centuries later, darkness again came down and covered the whole land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour as Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
As the prophet Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before that in Isaiah 53, 8, that God's servant would be cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And so what we see is, is the utterly incomprehensible that the God and author of life himself yields his life. His immortality suffers mortality. See, God wasn't saying to Abraham and then to his people after him and then to us, I would rather be cut off. He was saying, I would be, I will be, I will be cut off for your sake. Something fascinating the author of Hebrews draws our attention to. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews, what he does, he he goes through this catalog of heroes of the faith. All these Old Testament heroes of the faith, many of them familiar to us as we've read their stories throughout the Old Testament. He talks about Abel and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Samson and David and more and more. And by the end of the chapter, this is what the author of Hebrews sums up about these heroes of the faith. He says, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy that was set before him. I like that. The joy that was set before Jesus, he looked at and he said, yes, that's worth it. What was worth it? We were. Recently, I can't remember if it was during the Masters or or sometime in the last few months, I caught on television Tiger Woods sitting down with an interviewer and they're watching his final putt uh, in 1997 when he won his first Masters. He was a young man at the time, right? Uh, His Tiger Woods, you know, I'm not that into golf, but pretty much everybody knows who Tiger Woods is. That, that man's life has been defined by golf uh, in really great ways and really sad ways as well. His success, his failures have been very public. People, uh, he's well known to be a very meticulous, uh, on the borderline maybe OCD worker in the, way, the details and in in his regimens and the ways that he prepares to play the game and all the things that he has gone through, ups and downs included. And as he's watching that moment, that final putt, the, when winning his first Masters, if you remember after he celebrates, he goes and immediately hugs his father. So you wonder what's he going to say as he's recapping what was going on in his mind uh, at the winning of his first master's tournament. He said this. He said, it's so much more than just winning a golf tournament. That hug right there, that is my entire life. That's special. Golf has defined Tiger Woods' life. But as he watched that, his hug with his father, Earl Woods, he said, that hug right there. That is my entire life. 
What would it be like to know a love that pierced through some of the highest of highs and lowest of lows, that was just always there, that was always the same, could not be less than it was, could not be more than it was because it just was. What would that be like? What Abraham began to believe this day, what Paul points us to in recapping this story, what the author of Hebrews draws our attention to is that we have this. We don't just have the word of God, what he said he would do. We have what he did do when his word became flesh. Our savior, our brother Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. And he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. That is a promise worth building your life on. It's good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would bring your promises to bear on our hearts, on our minds, our lives this morning, that we would know that we stand upon solid ground, not because of how we stand, with what kind of legs we stand, with what kind of strength we stand, but because of on whom we stand our rock, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus, our joy and our crown. Father, would you give us life and would you give it to us abundantly as you have promised you would do. We pray these things in Jesus' matchless name, amen.